Calvary Church is located in beautiful Peterborough, Ontario, and is committed to impacting that community with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Each week, one of our preaching team draw powerful life application truths from the Bible. Check us out here or online at calvaryptbo.church. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven, and he starts out the chapter that's talking about hell by saying this, for every American who believes he's going to hell, there are 120 who believe that they're going to heaven. Hmm. If people believe there is a heaven and hell, most would say that they would be going to heaven, or at least they hope they're going to heaven. But if the scripture's accurate, that's not necessarily the the case. Now, I I have to admit, I don't like talking about hell at all. It's not quite the life of the party topic to bring up, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't don't like going to the birthday parties, and uh, and you're sitting around, you know, talking about life and everything else, and uh, and someone turns to you, and then all of a sudden you say, well, you know, actually, I've been thinking a lot about hell. Here, let me talk to you about hell and what really hell's all about. It just kind of dampens the mood, doesn't it? It's not one of those topics we enjoy talking about. It's not fun to talk about. Hell is a difficult and, for many, the most difficult aspect of Christianity. Last year, LifeWay Research put out a survey and they found that 45% of Americans agree hell is a real place. Only 45% agree that hell is actually a real place. Now, Pew Research Center reported that a vast majority of highly religious And somewhat religious Americans, 8 out of 10 of those who would classify themselves as highly religious or somewhat religious, would say that they believe in hell. While those who are non-religious, only 5% of them would say that they believe in hell. I find that interesting. You see, many like the concept of heaven, but not so much the concept of hell. I think there are many who who make a claim similar to something like this. The reason I'm not a Christian is because I refuse to believe in a God who would condemn people to an eternal hell. Or, as if a loving God would send someone to hell. It's uncomfortable to, to think of. And in many eyes, it's, it's absolutely repulsive. Peter Kreeft, who is a philosopher at Boston College, says, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. On the surface, it is extremely difficult to combat the notion of hell. Now, seriously, if it was up to me, I, I don't think I would have construed the whole concept of hell. I, I, I'm just too nice of a guy. And even the, the vilest offenders in this life, to, to put them through an eternity in hell, well, maybe I'd be a little softy on that. Sure, maybe the first million years, but after that, you know, at some point along the way, I would say, ah, okay, maybe. But the problem is, is it's not up to me. 
In fact, it's not up to any of us, this whole concept. Who in their right mind has the authority or thinks they have the authority to make the decisions for all of humanity? Only the one who created everything. Mark Clark, who wrote a book called uh, The Problem of God, says, Being repelled by hell is not enough to prove that it's not real or it doesn't, make, or it doesn't rationally make sense. It just means you don't like it. But not liking something is not a sufficient way of discerning what is true or false. We have to wrestle with what isn't favorable, yet seems to be quite clear about in Scripture. There's a, there's a common misconception that hell is a, an Old Testament teaching, but not so much in the New Testament. And so maybe, maybe it's, it's not as, as real as it really, we thought it was. You know, the Christ, you know, Christ is, a, is, is a loving man. We love the concept of Jesus and how good of a person he was. You know, I, I, I agree with Jesus, but this hell thing? Here's the misconception. Jesus is actually the one in whom we get most of our teachings about hell. He's the one who, who speaks of it most. And I would dare to say those who claim to love the person of Jesus, not just, you know, I just don't like his followers, the reality is, is you probably haven't read much of his teachings. Jesus is very forthright with his understanding of hell. The whole concept of hell is not something I have, co- I have come up with. It's only something that I have to communicate. So don't blame me. Don't get mad at me for what Christ has instituted and what God has put in place. I love how Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in California, says, he says, everyone is betting their life on something. Atheists are betting their life there is no God. Buddhists are betting on Buddha. I'm betting my life on the fact that Jesus Christ was not a liar. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, not a good way, Not one of the ways, not a nice way. I am the way. And if Jesus is saying that there is a literal hell, then I'm betting on the fact that there is. As Andy Stanley says, if anybody can say, I'm going to die, be buried, and resurrect again on the third day, and then does it, I'm going to follow that guy. And I agree. Jesus has proven himself to be true in way too many ways. And when he says that there is a literal hell, I believe it. I may not necessarily like it, but it doesn't matter. I must believe. So, so what is the, the whole concept of hell? Like, how, does, how does scripture, how does Jesus, how does the rest of the New Testament really talk about this whole concept of hell? Well, let me give you some some passages of scripture of how how hell is described in the new testament many of the words of jesus it's described as outer darkness weeping and gnashing of teeth eternal fire torment under the earth death and hades eternal separation from god there are three in the christian sphere there are three kind of themes as to how 
uh, to view hell. There's the traditional theme, first and foremost, and Millard Erickson in his book Christian Theology says it this way, if there is one basic characteristic of hell, it is in contrast to heaven, the absence or banishment from his presence. It is an experience of intense anguish, whether it involves physical suffering or mental distress or both. There is a sense of loneliness, of having seen the glory and greatness of God, of having realized that He is Lord of all, and then being cut off. There is the realization that this separation is permanent. Similarly, the condition of one's moral and spiritual self is permanent. Whatever one at the end of this life will, con- whatever one is at the end of this life will continue for all eternity. There is no basis for expecting change for the better. Thus, hopelessness comes over the individual. Kind of a grim picture of reality. He's saying hell is literal. It's eternal. It's the epitome of anguish, and you can't do anything about it once you're there. Mark Clark says it this way, it is an awful, hopeless, and lonely existence. No doubt, this is a tough pill to swallow. So many have tried to water down this concept of hell, and that's why they've come up with some other ideas as, as to what can, can we think of, of hell, and, and just to kind of tone it down a bit. So the second view is that of universalism. It's those who reject Christ in this life. Yeah, they'll go to hell for a season, but will eventually be released and, and end up in heaven. So the understanding is that God's, the concept of God is love it becomes triumph. It, it triumphs everything else. The third view is annihilationism. Those who reject Christ in this life, well, they'll cease to exist, whether immediately after death or maybe there is a period of punishment, but at some point they will simply cease to exist. And so this concept of God's mercy triumphs. The challenge with these last two views, there's really nothing in Scripture that actually teaches this. The couple of key passages of Scripture used to support these two claims have to be taken out of context in order to teach this. Yes, God is the fullness of love. And yes, God is the fullness of mercy. But God is also the fullness of justice. Like I said earlier, just because something is unpleasant or unenjoyable doesn't make it untrue. Francis Chan says it this way, Do you ever even consider the possibility that maybe the Creator's sense of justice is actually more developed than yours? When we make statements like, well, God wouldn't do this, would he? At that moment, we are actually putting God's actions into submission to our reasoning. God wouldn't think that way or act that way because I would never think that way or act that way. How dare we? That's a flawed view of yourself and of God. Who are we, the one who is created, to assume we can know the thoughts and ways of the almighty, all-knowing creator? 
passage of scripture I read for you last week was Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. People, we cannot fully grasp why God does things the way he does at times. But we must trust that he is right. His ways are higher than my ways. I think with a finite, three-dimensional mind, God is outside of space and time and sees things in ways in which we can never comprehend. And so we must trust that God is right. Norm Geisler says this, Hell is not a torture chamber where God gets his kicks, seeing the people who reject him undergo suffering. Rather, hell is a designated place for those who willfully rejected eternal life in favor of an eternal separation from God which results in eternal torment. Willfully rejected eternal life, which separates us from God and causes eternal punishment or torment. Now, who willfully wants to do that? Who willfully rejects eternal life in favor of eternal separation from God? I don't think anybody willfully thinks, or at least they, they don't think they willfully do this. You know, we, but we often fall into this misconception. Well, listen, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, you know, I, I pay my taxes. I help my neighbor. I don't cheat on my spouse. I, you know, get to work on time. I stop at the red lights. You know, whatever it is, we, we think... We're good people, but the problem is, is being good just isn't cut it. You can't be good enough to earn yourself favor with God. Because where's, where's the line in that? How good is, too, is good enough? And at what point do you, oh, we're so close. If I just would have, you know, opened that door one more time for that older lady. It would have put me over the edge. Like, where's the line? How do we judge? Well, we don't, because it has nothing to do with us. I like the way Paul says it. He says, listen, it's not about good works. It's not about what you do, or else you're going to boast about it. It's about what Christ has done for you. It's not about us. It's about what he's done. As I referred to earlier, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to escape hell and enter into an eternity in heaven is through accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Those who choose not to accept him reject him. And willfully reject him, meaning eternal separation. You see, committing our entire life to him and pursuing the life that he has for us is what he longs for us to do. Paul states it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, For I 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who who go to hell go there on their own accord, not because God sends them, but because they reject him. Does that break my heart? Yes. But I can't force anyone to accept him. And God chooses not to as well. His plan has always been to create those in his image that would willingly come to him and want to have relationship with him. He allows us to pursue him. He allows us to come to him. And he's there with open arms. Now there are three, according to Norm Geisler, there are three theological bases as to why God would do this. Why God would, would allow this to happen. The first is that it, it, God's holiness demands it. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, Your eyes, talking about God, says your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God's very nature cannot tolerate sin. It can't allow sin. It can't allow rejection to be in his presence. Mark Clark says it like this. If God is truly just, then there is a hell. And God is truly just. The second thing is that Satan's rebellion compels it. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Because of Satan's rebellion against God, God created hell and separated Satan from him. And said, This will be the place in which you will spend eternity. And so hell was created first and foremost for Satan and the fallen angels, those who rebelled against God. The third area is people's sinfulness requires it. Just a just sentence for the wicked against an eternal God is an eternal punishment. A just sentence for the wicked against an eternal God is an eternal punishment. Because of God's eternal nature, the punishment becomes eternal. This is serious, serious stuff. So, so then how do we respond to this? Now listen, I'm not, I'm not asking you to like the concept of hell. But we must come to grips with the fact that God is holy. Yes, he's a loving and merciful God, but he's also just. And he knows what we don't. And the reality is, we have, to be honest, I think we have a higher view of ourselves than we ought to. And that's part of the challenge of being a fallen human. 
the Apostle Paul describes it like this. He says in Romans chapter 7, he says, it's like this battle within me. My human nature and my new life in Christ are at odds against each other because I know the things that I should be doing, but I don't find myself doing those things. And then the things that I know I shouldn't be doing, well, that's kind of what I find myself doing. And so I'm constantly in this struggle, in this battle, knowing what I should do and trying to live that way. We constantly have this struggle within us, and that's, that's what we do. That's, that's the greatest evil that happened to us in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were, they were simply not just content with being made in the image of God. They actually wanted to be God. They wanted to be their own God. And all of us, in, in essence, if we're left to our own demise, all of us want the same thing as well. We don't want anybody else to tell us how to live, what to do. We want to become our own God. We want to pave our own path. We want to do what is the way we want it. So to submit to something we don't like is hard. Yet it must be done. You see, the question shouldn't be, why would God do this? question should actually be, why wouldn't he? Think about it. His creation, you and I, in which he fashioned in his own image and he breathed life into, has rebelled against him. How could we even consider ourselves worth God coming down in the flesh to become like us for the whole purpose, now here's a fancy theological word, for the whole person of, of being the atonement for our sins, for being the way in which we have a reconciliation or a, a renewing of a relationship between God and us. It is only because of Christ's work on the cross that we can have a relationship with him. See, God's great love compelled him to compare to continue pursuing us. Even when we rejected, his love compelled him to pursue us, knowing that his great justice demands humanity's rebellion to be separated from him. He was compelled to pursue us. People, the very thought of hell should compel us. Not in a fearful way, Anyone who comes to a faith in Jesus Christ as a result of fear, more often than not, their, their faith in Christ doesn't last very long. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to, to fear anyone into a relationship with God or pursuing God, but I think the whole concept of hell should actually compel us to pursue God as a result of what we know we are avoiding as a result of Christ. It should compel us to say thank you. It should compel us to worship him. It should compel us to draw closer to him. It should also compel us to share our faith. Like when we grab this whole concept of hell, it should compel us to want to tell others about him. I looked up the death rate in, in, on Stats Can with regards to, to Peterborough. 
And if I did my math properly, and if I read it right, and I think this is pretty accurate, there's probably in the next 365 days, there will be over 1,100 people who have passed from this life into eternity just in Peterborough and the surrounding area. In other words, that's about three people every day are passing from this life into eternity. And if Scripture is accurate, most of them have entered into an eternity in hell. Doesn't that do something for you? Like when I thought about it, when I was just wrestling with this, I, I, I couldn't help but be overwhelmed at the magnitude of that. We so often want to sanitize reality. But in actuality, God is saying, please pay attention. Pay attention, pursue me, and share this with others. His love compelled him to pursue you. And it's only because of that that you have a hope for the future. But what about your coworker, your neighbor, your family member? Is it gripping you this morning? that many of them don't have a hope for eternity? You know, there's a song that, it's not, we don't sing it as often anymore, but we used to sing it on a regular basis, and in the, in the bridge it says, break my heart for what breaks yours. And that's become a prayer of mine that I, I pray on a pretty frequent basis. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. May our eyes be opened to that. Now, if you are here this morning and you don't have a faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to scare you into a relationship with Christ. But I do want you to understand the reality of what happens into eternity. But you don't have to fear because Christ has paved a way for you as well. You don't have to be born into a Christian home. You don't, have to, you don't have to have all the bells and whistles and do the right things and, and accomplish the right tasks. You simply need to come to him and recognize, Jesus, I'm sorry for living this life my way. Jesus, forgive me for what I've been doing and rejecting you. I want to accept you into my life. I want you to be Lord of my life from this point forward. Help me. Help me, Lord, to know how to live for you. It's as simple as that. And you begin a journey in a new life with Christ. He paves the way. Are you perfect from this point forward? No. No, you're on a journey. But again, God doesn't look at our actions. He looks at our heart. And when our heart is focused on him and when we pursue him, the actions change. He begins to fashion us and mold us into his image. He begins to work on us. It's a fancy term we use. It's called sanctification. It's the process of being made holy. He works on you from this point forward. You don't have to be perfect. 
and then come to Christ. You come to Christ and he molds you into the person he wants you to be. I want to invite you to come to him today. Accept him into your heart. and Begin a new life with him. If that's something you're interested in doing, maybe you've just already done that in your own heart, then I encourage you to come and talk with me or come and talk with, with Tracy or, or maybe you came with someone that's a follower of Jesus and you want to turn to them and just say to them this morning, hey, I, I need Jesus in my life or I, I just prayed a prayer like that dude up there on the platform said, I, I want Jesus in my life. Tell somebody about this. Let us help you on this journey of faith. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for who you are. God, if it wasn't for you sending your son to the cross for my benefit, I would be hopeless. But it's not just for me. You did this for every single person who's ever breathed life on this earth. Your work on the cross carries so much weight, so much significance, that it revolutionized humanity. You paved the way for us to have a right relationship with you again. I'm so thankful today for who you are, for what you've done. Lord, may we often be reminded of what we are saved from, that eternity in hell. You are saving us for that. Our hope is in you. We can put our hope in you because you are the Messiah. You are the one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you. Thank you today. This morning we are going to have communion. It's, a, it's a, a moment in which as a family of God, we can eat and drink together in remembrance of what it is that Christ has done for us. Jesus, on, before he went to the cross, the night before he was crucified, he had a meal with the disciples. And at the meal, it was a symbolic meal for the, the Jewish nation. And, and at that meal, he took two key components of the meal and he, and he brought new meaning and new, uh, a new symbolism behind it. And he said, okay, when we eat this bread together from this point forward, I want you to remember what I'm about to do. And they didn't fully grasp, they weren't aware really of what Jesus was talking about until after the fact, but he said, every time you get together, I want you to eat and drink, I want you to do this in remembrance of me because this bread is going to, is going to symbolize the work that I'm about to do for you on the cross, the pain, the suffering that I'm about to endure for your sake, for your humanity, for your sins. And then a little later on, he takes this cup and he says, okay, New meaning around this. This is the last time I will drink this with you until we meet each other again in eternity. Because this cup is symbolic of the new agreement, the new covenant that I have with you at, from this point forward. And if you put your hope in me and what I'm about to do on the cross, you have hope for eternity. So remember that every time you drink this together. So that's what we're doing here today. 
We serve what's called an open table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't necessarily have to be a part of Calvary Church, but you are part of the family of God. You have committed your life to Christ. You can eat and drink with us here this morning. Even if it's something you've done here for the very first time this morning, you can eat and drink with us. Now, if you're not comfortable with that yet, that's fine. Just pass on. We can do, we can talk to you more about that. But we are going to eat and drink together in a, in a few moments. As the servers serve, I want to read for you from Romans chapter 8. I want you to pay attention and just listen to the words of Romans 8 for a second. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father! The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we, we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit leads us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of Christ because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's celebrate the fact that we are God's children because of our hope in Him. We do not have to fear hell. We have hope for eternity with him. And when we eat and when we drink together this morning, we drink in recognition of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He paved the way for you and I, and we can celebrate with him all the way into eternity. Amen? Let's eat and drink together. So Heavenly Father, I pray today that as we leave from this, may our minds be set on you. May we pursue you, Lord because of, we know what we have, are missing out on because of your grace and because of your mercy. Lord, may we pursue you with all that we are because we know that you've saved us from an eternal punishment. We deserve it. We totally deserve it. Yet your love 
has been so rich and real for us. Your grace and your mercy has overwhelmed us. And so, Lord, we willingly accept you and choose to serve you this week. So help us, Lord, as we go to continue to pursue you and help us as we go to continue to share you with others. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. May God bless you as you go, and we can't wait to see you next week. And I would encourage you, bring somebody along with you. God bless.